Coming to you live from an undisclosed location south of the Mason-Dixon line, this is Pearl Snap Tactical. All right, we are back with another episode of the Pearl Snap Tactical podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and with me is... What's up, guys? This is Alex. <laughs> is Alex. All right. Hey, how you been, brother? Oh, pretty good. What about you? Good. We just got back from Pennsylvania running some courses up there. We had a pretty good time, didn't we? Had a ball. Yeah. A ball. Um, glad to be back. And I'll tell you, this is something that's pretty cool. I know we have not been putting out as many episodes as we liked, as we would like to, and we've been hearing about it. I've been getting messages, people asking, when are you going to dump another episode? When are you going to dump another one? So anyway, I appreciate everybody's patience, and and it's pretty cool to know that you're missed. So without yeah, further... Nice. Without further ado, we're going to get into this show. We're going to talk about primary and secondary threats. And if you're on the newsletter, I sent a, um, a write-up about this where we kind of talked about defining what primary and secondary threats are. And I'm going to share a story with you that happened in Vegas in 2014. So if you've already read that on the letter, just kind of this will be a, kind of a little bit of review for you. But primary and secondary threats let's first about um let's talk about a story that happened so in the summer of 2014 in las vegas two police officers were having lunch at a cc's pizza around that time there was a couple a disturbed couple frankly by the name of jared and amanda miller they walk in and for real reasons that i'm not really clear on they walked in and they just shot the officers at Point Blake just shot and killed him right there in the restaurant. And at that point, they fled to a nearby Walmart. As they walk in, according to reports, Jared walks in first with his gun brandage and he fires up in the air and he says that, you know, to words of this effect, that he's starting a revolution. And his wife, Amanda, was trailing, you know, in the rear. Around that time, there was a concealed carry holder uh, by the name of Joseph Wilcox, who very bravely decided to intervene, and he drew his pistol, and he confronted Jared. But what he didn't see was Amanda that was in, in the back, and she came up alongside of him, and before Joseph realized it, she had drawn her gun, shot him in the, in the ribs, and he collapsed and died at the scene. Later, uh, subsequently, both Jared and Amanda were killed by police uh, in a, or, or died in the altercation there, the standoff with police. So that is the story, sadly. Um, so let's talk about, kind of unpack some of the principles that are happening there and as it relates to primary and secondary threats. You know, for our purposes, you know how we always start out, we define our terms. So if we're going to talk about something, we want to make sure everybody's on the same page. So when we think about, for the purposes of this discussion, a primary threat, that would really just be the initial threat. You've got the initial threat. It's the first gunman. It's really the threat that you see. It's the first thing that draws your attention and that you focus on. Whereas a secondary threat could be something that is either, it's the follow-on attack. It could be deliberate like a plan. So that could be an accomplice, somebody else waiting in the wings, uh, or it could be 
not it couldn't be deliberate at all. It could just be the fallout of that attack. A lot of times when we see primary and then secondary threats or attacks, um, oftentimes you'll see something with bombings. A lot of times you may have a gunman start off an attack in order to draw the first responders uh, to the scene. And as they arrive upon the scene, he has already placed a, an IED or some kind of explosive device that is set to detonate when they arrive on the scene or if a crowd gathers. So you have the primary threat, which is the attack, the initial attack, the crowd gathers, uh, and boom, off goes the explosive. It could be something also where the first attack is made to funnel people into a kill zone. So you could have somebody um, detonate an explosive device in a building so what's the first thing people are going to do? They're going to leave the building. So as they funnel out of the doors, you could have a gunman waiting to pick people off as they as they come out. So just because it's secondary doesn't mean that it's less lethal. We're just saying it's the follow-on attack. I mean, it it could be more deadly than the than the initial attack. So the challenge that Anybody, whether you're, you're military or you're in law enforcement or you're just a concealed carry holder that's just looking to protect your family, you know, the, the first threat you see may not be the only threat, right? Right. right. So that's, that, that's kind of what we want to talk about there is, is kind of think about ways to, to train this into our minds so that we don't get caught flat-footed and end up you know, becoming deceased. Because as you can see, I mean, the first lesson we can take away from it is that the good guys don't always win, right? That's right. I, I mean, e either way, like once you, uh, once you draw your weapon, you're fighting that guy and all his buddies. Like yeah. that's the mindset you need to have going into any of that stuff. So once, once that pistol comes out and you're ready to go lethal, you're fighting that guy and all his buddies. Yeah. And yeah. you don't know who they are. So you need yeah. to find and identify them as quickly as possible. Yeah. So let's talk about what, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, armchair quarterback, this poor guy, you know, that's now deceased, but I do want to look at the lessons and kind of talk about not what we, not what he should have done, but like what we would do if we were faced in a, in a similar circumstance, you know, what type of things we can learn. So let's talk about getting involved in the first place. So we know that, particularly as a concealed carry holder, you don't have a duty, at least that I'm, that I'm familiar with, you don't have a duty to intervene when you see an attack going on. might be a nice thing to do. Uh, it might be something that we would want to do, but you're not legally obligated to do that, right? So the question is now is, is how we get involved. So that will then, you have to know the laws of your jurisdiction, right? You got to know the laws because let's take this situation where Jared uh, wa walks in and let's say he's not pointing a weapon at anybody. Let's say somebody walks in, draws a weapon and fires into the air and says whatever but he's not pointing at anybody. Well, now he has brandished a deadly weapon. He definitely could be charged probably in most jurisdictions with assault. But now when you look at uh, the laws of, uh, and the use of force on whether or not you want to confront or whether or not you're justified in putting this guy down, some jurisdictions you know, may build into there that, especially if the gun's not pointing at you, 
you might have a duty to retreat if it's reasonable to do so. And um, this isn't the uh, a laws on regarding the use of self force self defense class. We're not going to turn it into that, but it's just something that I want to remind you to think of that you know you have to do. You know, is the threat imminent? You know, you have to. Is it? Um, you know, you have to respond with the proportionate amount of force. And you know, there's several different elements. And while they are relatively uniform across the various states, there are nuances. And one of those would be, you know, whether or not you have a duty to retreat if it's reasonable to do so. You have other states that have things like stand your ground where they've eliminated that. So those are just things that, like, again, we're not going to get into that. That could be its own podcast. But you do have to know what your what what the laws in, in your state. Yeah, I mean, there you've got to have that down anytime you walk out the door um, and, you, and you're going to get involved with that stuff. All right, so let's look at, in this particular case in Vegas, there were a lot of people that just chose to leave. They just ran out. Um, and it gets back to that you know, the DHS mantra of run, hide, fight when you're dealing with an active shooter, right? You're free to do that. So the next thing we could say is, all right, so that is an option. You can just run away. Boom, we're done. Now, what if you can't run away? What if you are, have, you're out shopping with a loved one and you are separated, right? So you go into a store, which is not uncommon for me and my wife. You know, she heads to one, one area and I head to the other because we're getting different things. And so now let's take in this scenario, someone comes in and now the gunman or the threat is in between you and your family member. Well, now running away really isn't. So now we have to think about how are we going to tackle an issue, knowing now what we know about primary and secondary threats. So before we got on the line, you were talking about something about with threat fixation. So I'd like you to kind of go through that. So threat fixation, and uh, to me, there's target fixation and there's threat fixation. So some people tend to fixate on one target after their engagement is over with, right? So you'll be firing at a target and you fire till the thing goes down and you're unaware of anything else around you. You have to break that target fixation. Well, there's another type that's um, threat fixation, meaning... uh, if let's say you got uh, the bad guy comes in with a gun and then that threat's done with, but the cops come and they shoot the first gun they see. Or, you know, another civilian shoots that guy because that, they saw the threat but didn't realize whether it was a good guy or a bad guy being in plain clothes. So threat fixation would be you're fixating on the gun and not what's holding the gun. So, yeah, I've... Uh... You know, we work a lot with law enforcement and the hot thing right now dealing with uh, active shooters and mass attackers is uh, what's called alert training. So I've looked at some of their training videos and and discussed it with uh, cops and first responders. And um, I've watched training videos of officers. You know, they they uh, they they kid up, you know, with the safety gear and they've got the sim sim munition guns and they go in there and they have these scenarios that they're role playing role play through. And I've watched a lot of video where it's not uncommon for the officers to kill other officers. So you might have a role player that's posing as an off-duty officer, you know, and he might even be screaming blue, blue, you know, which code word for cop and that, you know, with these particular groups, or he might say police, police or whatever. 
and but they they just smoke him with the sim round. You know, it just happens. Mm-hmm. And there's there's been um, you know news stories that I've seen of off duty police officers that are intervening and in something, and you know the police roll up and boom, all they see is a dude with the gun, and that's a real. If it's a problem for the police, you you know who are training, you better believe it's a problem for. Or should be a consideration for the concealed carry holder as well. Right, because you know sometimes they get more training. Uh, that you know civilians have more training than you know some police, and then the majority of the time civilians don't have near the training that police do. You know, so there's that. Yeah, too. and that's yeah, and that's something that I haven't really seen a lot of folks addressing. You know. Uh, in their classes and we, we, you know, we talk about a little bit, but you know, we're focused on, on other things, but the idea of, if you do get into an altercation, man, you need to make sure you neutralize the threat. And as soon as it's safe to do so, you got to think about, man, I've got a, I've got a live weapon in my hand and I need to make that thing disappear as soon as possible. If it's safe to do so, because now I've got second and third order effects. I got to think about, about arriving police and, you know, I know around in, in our city, you know, they've got less than a two minute response time. That's not a long time. There's a lot that can happen in two minutes. But when you think about the chaos coming down and and all the other things or, or, or even thinking about another concealed carry holder that then comes onto the scene. I mean, there's just there's all kinds of issues that, you know, people I guess what I would say is you really need to be thinking those things through you know, before it's, it's more than just going out and making sure you know how to run your gun. You have to kind of think the situation from start to finish, you know, because the post, you know, the, the post incident actions that you take are equally important because more lives can be lost just due to, you know, what we call the fog of war, I guess to use a military term, but I mean, that's real, even in the civilian world, anytime there's a a shooting, you're going to have that fog where there's that chaos and, that's when accidents and other unfortunate things can manifest. Right, right. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying back to your uh, back to your scenario there, uh, where you're separated. What is uh, what is the best or a good course of action there? We've got our loved one. We got to get into. We got to get to, and we've got this guy in between us. So the first thing. It, at least in the Vegas story, from my understanding, and some of the details are, are, are uh, fuzzy, but the best I can gather from the reports I read was that the concealed carry holder walked up and confronted the suspect or the assailant. So he confronted him, right? So he drew his weapon and he goes up and, and confronts him. So that is a problem. by number. like uh, having a having a conversation with him, barking out orders, that type of thing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So we're going to have to, the the details are unclear. So we're going to have to take the scenario and just kind of modify it for our own educational purposes. So when I hear the word confront, to me, I think of kind of open confrontation. You know, I think of walking up to someone and saying, you know, so drawing your gun and saying, put, put freeze, put the weapon down, put, or starting to issue commands, you know, uh, which is not something unlike what law enforcement officers do, right? They do that all the time. I think it takes a, gr- a great amount of discipline to do that, yeah. you know? Um, so the guy's commended for the chutzpah, you know, to, 
to have the uh, the wherewithal to to control himself really. But if he walked up out in the open and confronted someone, the problem is it's like what you said, the threat fixation. You know, you're not he he did not anticipate that there could have been another gunman, which there was in this case. So now we have to think about all right, if if we if we have to intervene, you know, and it's reasonably, it's uh, subjectively and objectively the reasonable thing to do. Now we have to start thinking about the manner in which we do it. So this goes back to you know, what we teach in our classes. You know, now you've got to start atta- uh, using your tactics because you know the shooting is the skills portion, but the knowledge of how to apply and when to apply those skills. Now your tactics come into place, and the first thing you have to do. You know, the, the three pillars of, of tactics, you know, that we're going to focus on is you've got the fire and maneuver piece, but you also have to have an eye for terrain. So an eye for terrain is if you're outside or if you're an indoors, don't get, don't think about terrain as just being, you know, mountain features and ridge lines and depressions and draws and, you know, stuff like that. We're just talking about the layout of your, of the battle space. And so you have to have an eye for the terrain. And so the first thing you have to do, if you are going to, if it's not a situation where he's, he's about to kill someone. So then now you're legally justified to draw your weapon and neutralize them. You know, then you're going to need to move to a place of cover so that if for nothing else, you can further observe the battle space, right? If it's too early for you to neutralize right? It's too early. Then the least that you need to do is to move to a position that gives you an advantage to where you have some kind of cover, or if, if the cover is not available, at least some kind of concealment, Uh, right? Like, like I always say, better weapon, better position. Yeah. Yeah. Better weapon, better position. So now you've moved to a better position that allows you to see better, and deprives them the ability of to you know engage you, or at the very least to see you right to where your your silhouette or your form is obscured right. So also having an eye for terrain is not just moving off the X and getting to cover. It's also identify your avenues of approach. You know how can he get to you? How could other people get to you? What are the key terrain or the key features that if what if I start opening up on this guy, and now I've got three dudes opening up out of the woodwork all of a sudden, right, on my position. Now the position I have may have been good mano a mano, but maybe now I've got dudes at different angles, and that, that position of cover is not so great. So what's my next piece that I'm going to move to? You know, where can I fix him? Where can I pin him down? You know, all those things. And it might sound like a lot, you know, when you're looking at, you know, obstacles. Hey, what's what obstacles do I have in my way either towards him or as I'm trying to get to my loved one, right? Yeah. And move uh, through. And I mean, are there people in between you and the threat? Or are there people behind the threat? Um, you know, there's a exactly. lot of stuff to go into that. Exactly. And so, you know, when we're talking about having an eye for terrain, that's a lot. And, you know, we didn't list them all, but. Um, when you think about it, it might sound like a lot, but it's like anything you have to know about it. And then you need to start practicing it because you got to be able to do that in real time. Right. That's what we do. Right. As military guys, when you're on patrol and you're, um, you know, you're doing a movement to contact or something, and then you get into a, get into a tick, 
you have to be able to assess that stuff in real time, right? Yep. And that just comes with practice. Like right. Lot, lots, lots and lots of practice. And, and, and unfamiliar places, too, because if you're doing all this stuff on a flat range, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Um, get out in the woods and move. Get out in yeah. uh, parking lots. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, without a gun, but how would you move in a parking lot? How would you move in a store inside a confined space? You know, uh, it's figuring out all that stuff. I, you know, it's just like anything. You're going to train it, and so make the training fun. You know, when you're out with your family or something, or you're out with your kids, you know, you can you can kind of talk without bringing in the macabre aspect of it, but you can do stuff to kind of start drilling yourself and kind of doing that. I mean, it's really, I think as a civilian, that's really about the only way you're going to get it. Because in the military, I mean, we get it all the time because that's our job. That's our, you know, we train for it. So you're getting it as part of your job. But when you're doing it on your own time, you're just going to have to find find ways to work that in and develop that skill, right? Because that those are the things that are going to help break your tunnel vision, right? That right? I right. mean, the things that you talked about with target fixation, threat fixation, and people talk about your adrenaline getting up and you get tunnel vision. I mean, having these types of protocols that you run through. That's how you're going to develop and break that tunnel vision. Yeah. You know, just doing a bunch of push-ups and jumping up and shooting a paper target. I mean, that's that's got its value, but it's not going to help you with this problem. Yeah, and and I mean, you do have to, you know, move your eyes off of that target to 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 get the scan. But I've seen a lot of people on the range kind of go way way overboard with it, and almost wind up 15 steps back, looking over the same shoulder 14 times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's great that you bring that up because the, uh, the tactical, I kind of call it tactical, like witchcraft, like the whole thing of like, you're shooting a stationary paper target that is not shooting you back. And then you're pretending basically to scan over your shoulder and look for threat. You're not really looking for things. I mean, I, I, I have not, with all due respect to the people who do practice that, there's, it's fine if you want to keep doing it. I'm not, I'm not bashing anybody, but I don't think there's any science behind that that I've seen or evidence because there's no stimulus that your brain is looking for. You're not well, actually looking right. for anything. You're, you're looking, you're not seeing. Yes. When, yeah. you, when you do it on a flat range, uh, in a flat range scenario, you're, you're looking, but you're not seeing. Your brain is not yeah. registering. You're just doing it to break your original fixation. Yeah. And just, uh, this At least is just from kind what of I've a, seen, so. Yeah. I mean, and actually you can kind of, when you don't have a stimulus and you don't, there's really nothing to see, you know, even, even in a training scenario, you can really kind of develop a bad habit to where you're just training your body to move, but your brain, your brain's not, your brain doesn't have a stimulus to anchor to, and it's not building any kind of real neural pathways other than a habit. And it goes back to what you're saying. You're, you're looking, you're not seeing anything. So now moving on. So I think, I think we beat that horse. So we're talking about the first thing is, you know, if you're not engaging right at that moment, right? Like guns out, boom, you, you know, it's right there. You know, there's certain situations where that happens. But if it's a situation where you're not going to engage just right away, then the first thing you need to do is take command of the battle space. So you're going to move and improve your position and then start 
start moving through your, your TTPs or your techniques, mm -hmm. tactics, procedures through there. Now, there was something that you said earlier when we were talking then that I want to get into about, and this kind of dovetails with what I just said, about allowing the situation to develop. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? All right. So allowing the situation to, to develop in what, uh, like what context we will, we'll need a little bit of a scenario to kind of let that, uh, or let's take this scenario. So we've got a guy that came in and he's pulled a gun and he's not waving it. I mean, he's waving around, but he's not, he's not shooting anybody yet. He's not pointing at it anybody yet. And let's say he's just kind of stationary there and he's yelling things. So we're going to move to a position of cover. Reassess. So, so this is back to the deal where your, your wife's in a store in a separate section. You know, if she was with me and we were both behind cover, you know, you can kind of let it, let it play on a little further maybe. Um, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you have to, and, and this goes back into that Las Vegas deal where there was somebody behind them. So, Mm -hmm. um, in that instance, yeah, you would probably need to let it develop a little further. So the good guys and the bad guys, you can differentiate between them. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so there's some instances where you could a little, uh, tactical patience would be, uh, a good thing, uh, by, by letting it develop. Yes. Um, well, yeah, and I think that also goes back to something you said earlier, you know, when we were we were kind of listing out that, like having an eye for terrain, and we mentioned that people being one of those things, depending on the situation. So if you're in a crowded place, a guy walks in, he pulls and sh fires a shot at the air, and he's kind of screaming, kind of get a handle on the situation. I mean, all you know at this moment is a guy's pulled a gun and has shot up in the air, and... I can't really think of too many reasons why that would be justified for somebody to do that. But at the same time, you, you're going to need to let people run, people take cover, people just crawl up into a ball on the floor. And but, like that's going to take a minute. And I mean, you know, that's assist. also kind of one of those things, too, because, you know, if you didn't see the guy come in and fire the shot, there's been people say, you know, I heard fireworks. And I did, just mm -hmm. didn't think anything of it. And they not even have a clue that a gunman has come into the store and was firing, firing rounds. They're just like, oh, man, yeah. this is weird. There's, it sounds like fireworks going off in here. What, yeah. you know, what the hell is that? Uh, so, yeah. you know, if you, if you don't see the guy come in, you've got to, you got to be able to react to that. You don't know where it's coming from. You have to search and find where that's at. So, I mean... You know, that's uh, also another, you know, another scenario because most of the time you're not going to be at the front of the store watching this guy walk in and pull a, pull a gun and shoot. What if you're in the back of the yeah. store? What yeah. if you're in the side, you know, cruising through your for your uh, uh, Claritin or whatever and yeah, you don't see right. any of that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, when you do kind of find it, you're going to have to assess it and you don't just kind of roll in guns a blazing blazing. At least now we're going to we're going to change this scenario up a little bit because, you know, we're just kind of doing what if now. So um, I'm not making any warranty that this for sure would have happened. But in this case where the second assailant, you know, Jared Miller's wife was coming in trailing behind him, they were acting in concert together. So 
I would assume that at some point she would have walked up to him. You know, unless that was their plan of, hey, I'm going to come along back and I'm going to take out anybody that tries to get you. I mean, just based on the reports I read, it doesn't seem like it was well thought out. You know, like if you and I decided to go rogue and, um, you know, go do something terrible like that. Well, I know you and me, we would have a game plan before we did that. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'd definitely be like, okay, bro, you're going to walk in and you're going to start, uh, you're going to start the action and I'm going to hang back and I'm going to be your sec, your security. And if anybody tries to take you, you know, I'm going to take care of it. Mm -hmm. You know, if anybody tries to get up on your six, but that's you and me, um, that would take a little bit of planning and forethought. There's no evidence to indicate they had that kind of planning or forethought other than according to what I read, I could be wrong, that they basically the first step was they just went in and killed some police officers. And after that, the Walmart thing and everything else was just kind of an afterthought. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be an example of maybe allowing the situation to develop. If nobody is in immediate danger, there's definitely a potential for danger, right? Because the gun's been pulled. There's been a shot fired in the air. But they're not, you know, there's no, but there's you, no immediate danger that you're aware of because you don't know about the CC's pizza thing, right? Right. And that, that's and what that's, I was going to get to there. Was you, you don't know what they just did. Yeah. If, you're if they the, did if, anything. Yeah. 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 So making sure that, so you have to, you know, as we talk through this situation, it's hard, you know, because we're just, we're dealing with the full picture now. But if you're there and you're a shopper, you don't know that they were in the CC's pizza thing. All you know is that you walk up, there's a dude with a gun, he's fired a shot in the air, and that's all you know. And he's and he's screaming some stuff. So the point of letting it develop, develop out, if you can, is that there's a possibility that you would have picked up Amanda Miller coming in alongside of him, and now you could be like, oh, okay, now there's two of them. Maybe. 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 But the thing that's for sure is that by, but you could only pick that up by being in a position of advantage to where you could observe that. If you go up and immediately confront, you've lost that, I guess is what we're saying. Right, right. That, that's, a, that's a bad thing. And, and for me being a concealed carry holster, a holder, I'm sorry, concealed carry holder, um, you know, you don't ever want to let them know you're um, what, capable I guess. Yeah. So that's your element of surprise. So let's take this back to military doctrine. So close quarters combat, what are the three, uh, the three elements you need to dominate close quarters combat? Speed, Speed. surprise, and violence of action. Right. Oh, I thought you were asking me a question. I'm well, sorry. I didn't know this was the Well, I mean, I was, so but I didn't know whether you knew the answer or not. <laughs> well, there's a good chance I wouldn't. So, all right, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, surprise. Surprise is your biggest thing. If you fake weak and you're really very capable, there's, uh, there's a huge, huge advantage to doing that mm-hmm. because that also gains you that second or whatever that you need to get your violence of action. Yeah, which is right. You know, piggybacks off a of surprise. Um, yeah. So there you go. We can just tie it back into uh, some of the stuff we teach there. So mm-hmm. you ain't fake weakness, but you're really strong, right? That's yeah. Um, that's your surprise element. Yeah. So now that we've kind of talked about, you know, we've talked about primary and secondary threats, how they operate, what they are, how they operate, uh, some of the considerations, you know 
that you need if if you come against you know your initial attack you have to move with the understanding that there might be another one so i think most folks at this point would be thinking all right well you said i really the flat range isn't going to give me you know develop that skill of dealing with this so how how do we prepare for that how do we train what do you think are are some options for ccws to kind of help develop this uh any type of reactionary trainer having a buddy you know run pop-up targets or um uh, something that you have to react to. So let's say you're getting ready to draw and your partner gives a command and then throws the ball towards one of the three targets out in front of you and you shoot the target where the ball lands. Yeah. Uh, that would be a cheap way to have a pop-up target. So you're yeah. going off of uh, uh, reaction, I guess. Yeah. And then you can do multiples of that after you you know shoot one and throw another ball and that's your that's your second person. So... It's yeah. teaching you not to get target or threat fixated and transition to your next threat and deal with it accordingly. And speaking of going dynamic, I mean, I think the best way to train it is force on force. You know, if you have that capability, if you have the, the funds and finances and you could find a good force on force class, I mean, that will really, depending on, on the trainers and how good the class is, you know, they could really really amp that up where there are other threats out there that you have to engage. So it really does teach you that even when one guy's down, you could be looking at, at other things to engage yeah. as well. And, and I mean, maybe that airsoft stuff too. Uh, it, yeah. It, I was it, just going to say good. that, you know, you don't, you know, you're, you're training, you're kind of, tra- it's, you're really training your mind, right? You're not, you're not training your, your, you know, you're running the gun, although that, that can be incorporated into it, but you really, you don't have to use live ammo for this. You can right. do airsoft, you can do paintball. paintball. I, I mean, good night, dude. If you want to use water balloons, I don't care, but yeah. I mean, you can, you can do, use anything you want. So you don't, ne- you don't necessarily have to go to a range or if you say, Hey, range won't let me do that stuff. Well, you don't have to have live ammo to train this stuff. You know, you just get a couple of your buddies and, um, you know, they set up a, a scenario where you don't know what's going to happen and then you go through it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, and they kind of test your responses and things like that. Here's another way we did it. This is not as dynamic, but it works. But, you know, that uh, a couple of years ago when we did that counter ambush class in Oklahoma City for the highway to patrol, we had a whole series of of obstacles and cover and things like that and several targets. Now, these were steel targets. Um, and the guys had to move through and engage them kind of like you would at a, a shooting competition, you know, where yeah. you only, it was deep instead of just kind of going laterally. But what they, what some of these guys did is that they hid the targets. Like some of them were very apparent. And I, I really like this because some of the targets were very apparent and it drew your attention to it. And then they would, and we had the latitude we could do almost 360 at this range. So they had targets off to the side, off to the corners, and that were obscured so that especially as you closed in with the target that you could see, if you weren't careful, you were going to get flanked by another target. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I thought that was great. And this that's what the students did. You know, they they incorporated that into the class. So you can be as creative with it and it could be, you know, it's going to be as valuable as the effort you put into it, but you don't, it ain't rocket science, right? I mean, you don't have to, 
You don't have to have a PhD in this stuff to kind of develop a good training. Program. Right, right. You just have to know what you uh, know what you want, uh, know what to look for, and, and uh, be able to, you know, diagnose your deficiencies where you are yeah. weak in your tactics, and that's what we try to give you the tools to do. All right, I think we hit that one. Let's go to. We got a couple quick questions before we close out. So this one's from Jeremy. Um, we kind of hit this one. I didn't have time to look up the state he's from. So Jeremy. I'm sure there's a lot of Jeremy's out there in America listening, but there's a particular Jeremy that emailed us and he asked a question um, on if we switch up our EDC, our everyday carry for changes in weather and other related conditions. Yeah, that's a good what question. You, uh, what do you say I mean, about I that? Cha I change mine up every day. What about you? Yeah, I change mine up based on where I am, where I'm going and, um, yeah, the time of the year, man. Um, I don't necessarily always change up the gun that I'm carrying, but I might change the configuration, like where I go, either appendix or if it's kind of more on my uh, at the 4:30, you know, type thing. It depends on what I'm wearing. Um, I don't have, I have not had really good luck with appendix carry. Um, without a baggy garment over it, like if it's just my t-shirt. Um, I've tried all kinds of holsters and stuff like that, and it just prints like a like a son of gun. So I don't always go appendix unless like I have a vest or a jacket or you know a pearl snap shirt you know over it that that's kind of loose. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean I I do switch my gun out every now and then. I, I mean most of the time I carry a 26, but you know if I'm wearing a jacket or something, I got more clothes on and I can conceal a bigger weapon. Yes, that makes me better at longer ranges. So yeah. why not shoot a gun that's got a longer barrel, you know, if you can. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But like I said, I normally carry a 26 all the time. But yeah, yeah so, yeah, I mean, so whether or not it's changing your, your weapon, changing your configuration, and then, you know, let me go ahead and nip this one in the butt because someone's being like, oh, no, dude, always the same, always the same, or... No, I mean, you train, right? You train. So I can draw from appendix. I can draw an outside the waistband. I can draw, you know, concealed at the 430. You know, I practice all those. So I'm not like all of a sudden not going to, you know, be carrying appendix now because it's wintertime. And then all of a sudden forget that I'm carrying appendix and freak out. I mean. Yeah, I, 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 I've done enough reps where it doesn't matter where I put it. That's yeah. So. Enough. Maybe our only caveat would be change it up according to your comfort and according to your desire, but just make sure you're you're versed in it, right? And don't be doing something that's off script for you that you're not used to, because that's that's where you could get into trouble. Um, all right, moving on. Same one, uh, Jeremy. You did such a good job writing in questions. I'm going to take another one of yours. And uh, the difference is, I guess he was saying our preferences on whether or not we like the semi-automatic or the revolver and um, about to tick some people off with this one. But uh, go, ahead, go ahead. What's your what's your take? Do you like revolvers? Uh, no, I was born this century, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now, uh, revolvers, it kind of depends. I, I have a revolver. Um, that, that I carry quite a bit. It's five shot, which I don't like that. 
Um, I don't have a speed reloader for it. Those things are about, I don't know, 40 bucks a piece for a mm -hmm. speed loader for a revolver. So, I mean, that's just not cost effective for me. Um, while the revolver is inherently more accurate, uh, I prefer accuracy by volume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gives you an option, right? I mean, yeah. well, so let's think about right now. I mean, wheel guns are making a comeback, right? And I think, uh, frankly, I mean, I think some of this is just out of boredom, man. I think people have like looked at all the, uh, the tactical stuff out, the tactical stuff out there. And, uh, they want to go to the new shiny thing. And for some reason, like, revolvers are like kind of becoming in vogue and i mean i own them I, i'll shoot them they're fun they're good but i think revolvers are kind of an antiquated i think it's becoming an antiquated piece of gear now when people say well they're more reliable yeah i mean 50 years ago yeah 50 years ago uh, world war ii yeah i mean back in that era when like the 1911s were were coming on online and and were being used in service and stuff like that that you know the semi-automatics were not as good as they are now but there's been a lot more science uh, that's been gone that's gone into putting those things together and if you are training regularly and you are maintaining your your weapon your semi-automatic and so you're you're taking it to the range, you're using it, and you're you're aware of what you know how the thing operates, and you're you're diagnosing you know any problems with it, you know as long as you're doing the maintenance and stuff. Yes, it could fail you, but you shouldn't have a catastrophic. You shouldn't be surprised by some kind of catastrophic failure. You know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I mean, I, I guess one of the other things uh, that's a pro on the revolver is uh let's take semi-automatics for a second so most semi-automatics if you push forward on the barrel um you won't be able to pull the trigger like a round won't go off uh, mm -hmm. because you're uh, unseating the, yeah. the action uh revolver doesn't have that problem uh unless somebody gets their hand back there around the hammer mechanism yeah. in between the hammer mechanism and the uh, firing pin so sorry um, well, what people don't know is right now there's like a hundred pound plus dog trying to get up in Alex's lap while yeah, he's talking. He, he's winning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, so anyway, the revolver, you know, it does fire every time. Um, mm -hmm. But they also say that about Glock too. So yeah. Glock, Glock will fire every time. Yeah, I mean, my thing goes back to 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 the principles you know if if i need to suppress someone and move on them you know if i want to find fix and neutralize somebody that's going to require a lot more than six rounds mm -hmm. um especially if it's at distance and that is taken into account i understand accountable for every shot but the fact of the matter is i i just don't want to hamstring myself with six shots Right, because you got to regain. You got to regain initiative or violence of action, and then you got to, you know, be able to put the threat down. So, yeah. I, to me, six shots ain't gonna do it. Uh, like I'm no Jerry Micklick, so I'm not uh, so yeah. one second reloading and firing a shot on target with a, a wheel gun. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so I mean not that's my, not not my skill set. Yeah. So I mean I know that that's something that, you know we could probably do a whole podcast on this uh, just on its own. It's it's an interesting topic. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. You know I'm not saying you're stupid if you do. 
but I'm just saying, me personally, I don't carry one out in public. I mean, I, I stay with the semi-automatic because I want the option, I want the capability that I can't get from revolver. I don't see any, I don't see any advantage with taking a in today's age of taking yeah. out a revolver versus a semi-automatic. I don't think there's any advantage given to you. Yeah, I mean, more bullets, more better. Yeah, that's that's kind of my my deal. All right, moving on. Uh, this one's from David. Uh, he had a question about plugs versus earmuffs. You know, for Ear Pro, um, whether or not I, I think his question was like if we use them both. I'm the world's worst at this because I put uh, spent brass in my ears before as earplugs. So. I have to. Um, you know, I, look, I'll use them both. It's really whatever's at hand. Um, I have done both before, like where I've put the foam plugs and the muffs, uh, especially if you if you get on a machine gun line, um, sometimes the concussion can, can kind of really do a, do a number on your eardrums. But even... Even in a class, so I've helped people with classes before that there were a lot of guns on the line, and I have sensitive ears anyway. I can't hear a thing, anything, but my ears are sensitive to, like, the concussion from guns, and I have found it helpful to sometimes use the foam plugs and then put my earmuffs over it to help with the concussion from the gun blast. But I don't usually do that when I'm teaching classes because it's just too inconvenient because I can't. And, you know, and I mean, that's one of those things, once you lose hearing, you don't get it back. So, I mean, it's better to be, uh, you know, overprotected than underprotected. I know, I know. You know so, uh, yeah, thank goodness. That's one of the things you're worried about. Yeah, yeah. So, that's a good point. So, anyway, um, if you have any more questions, y'all, just email us at info at com. You just email us anytime. We'll take a look at your questions. We'll try to answer them. Um if you if you need anything or you hit us up on Facebook or Instagram um, by the same handle, you just DM us and uh, we'll get to your questions and help you out any way we can. So anyway, that's all I got. You got anything? Nope. I'm about done for today. I think this was a good one. All right. So all right, guys. Well, we will. Thanks again for your patience. And um, we're going to try to go bi-monthly uh, as we can. So uh, we will continue to put... Uh, put episodes out. If you have an episode suggestion or something you'd like us to take on, go ahead and email us and we'll uh, try to put that in the queue and get it out to you. So if you don't have anything else, I'm going to sign off for me and Alex telling you to uh, be safe and keep it pearl snapped.